Are you ready to take your accounting career to new heights? Look no further. You're listening to From Zero to Millions, Accounting Edition. I'm Kelly Roars. And I'm Bilal Mihana. Together, we bring you treasure trove of expertise in the world of accounting. As the founders of our own firms, we truly understand the challenges you face day in and day out. Our combined experience with small and online businesses, paired with our background in accounting and entrepreneurship, is sure to help you bring your firm to the next level. Together, we'll deep dive into essential topics like staffing, technology, billing, goal setting, HR, and tax planning. We're here to provide practical advice that applies to CPAs, accountants, and business owners alike. So don't miss out on the opportunity to supercharge your accounting career and build the firm of your dreams. Welcome to our third episode of From Zero to Millions, Accounting Edition. Today, Bilal and I have on Robert Nordlander, CPA, down in wonderful North Carolina. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. As we've previously stated, this podcast is to help inspire other accountants who are maybe looking to go out on their own or just went out on their own. And, you know, we have Robert here today who spent 20 years working for the IRS and now he is doing his own thing. So, Robert, I'd love to hear how did that transition work? Tell us all about it. As a teenager, I grew up watching Chips, Miami Vice, SWAT, all those great TV shows about crime and that type of thing. And I wanted to be an FBI agent. That was the key because the FBI actually was hired mostly accountants and lawyers. And so being the teenager that I was and watching too much TV, I got a degree in accounting. My father was an accountant and a CPA, and he said, you can go take this job and go anywhere around the world with an accounting degree because there's always a need for one. So I went ahead and got an accounting degree, thinking I want to go into some type of law enforcement field. I was too young at the time when I graduated. When I got out, I was 20 years old when I graduated from, from college. I was one of those nerdy kids. I got an accounting degree and worked for a small CPA firm for about eight years and got my CPA license for that period of time and really yeah. enjoyed. It was a good it was a good experience. The taxes, the compilations, tax representation, that type of thing. And in the meantime, when I was doing that, I got my CPA license, and I also ran for political office. It was a city councilman here in, in a small city called Winston-Salem, and I actually won. So I was the youngest elected politician at the time, and I have always enjoyed law enforcement and wanted to be that type of thing, but just didn't go into it just yet. And here I am, an elected official, and... The cops would say, you don't know what it's like to be on the street until you actually ride with this. And I said, sure. So I'd get on a little bulletproof vest, bullet-resistant vest, and I'd go out there. And I'd on a Friday night, every other Friday night, I would go out there, and I would ride along with the cops on the, in the beat that were in my district. Wow. And I thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing. I get to see firsthand the drunk drivers and the spouses abusers and the drug addicts. You name it. It was all there. But the problem is I couldn't sit there and... Be over the police department, but yet be under the police department. I, I, you could be a reserve officer. And so I went to the county, and they said, hey, you can become a reserve deputy. So I went to the school, became a reserve deputy, and I would play cops and robbers on the weekend. I was a CPA during the week, and a private butter on the weekends. It was great. And so I had to look for law enforcement. And so I lost re-election, and 
and decided, what can I do? I want to go into federal law enforcement. At the time, the internet was just starting out. This was in the late 90s. And I went to the Secret Service website, FBI website, DEA, you apply for all of them. One of them was IRS. I didn't even know IRS even had a criminal investigation division at all. That was news to me. And it was a perfect marriage between law enforcement, because you're chasing the bad guys using your law enforcement experience, but also with your accounting knowledge. It was a perfect marriage between accounting and law enforcement. So it takes about a year, two-year process. So I went ahead and taught at a university for two years. And during the meantime, I was applying and then being interviewed. You go through the process. You just don't show up one day and they give you a badge and gun, of course. <laughs> so the first ones who offered me a position was the IRS. And so I spent six months with the IRS school down in what they call Fletzy, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Georgia. Spent six months there and learned all about the do's and don'ts of federal law enforcement and how to do a financial crime investigation, blah, blah, blah. I was way overqualified for this job, believe me. Just way overqualified. The reason why I say that is because they teach the basics you know, of tax and mm-hmm. accounting and that type of stuff. With a CPA license, it's just nothing, right? It's, you zoom through it. It's pretty easy. And when I had a law enforcement background too, so I've already been to the academy once or twice. So by the time I went to that one, it's, it was pretty good. So I spent 20 years with the IRS. And with 20 years of IRS experience, I went through tax evaders, filing false tax returns, money launderers. Most people don't understand that the IRS does have a law enforcement function called IRS criminal investigations. They carry the weapons. They have the handcuffs. They have unmarked vehicles. They do arrest warrants, search warrants, seizures of assets. They are the financial world's best financial investigators in the world. At any time, they were the tip of the spear of cryptocurrency investigations. The FBI does get a lot of publicity, but the IRS, frankly, are the top-notch financial investigators. So I did that for about 20 years and thoroughly enjoyed it. Spent a lot of time in court. Did you have to do a lot of traveling? Sometimes, yes, because i give an example. I spent my first five years in Alabama and the rest of my career in North Carolina. If you have a case, they're not going to have a New York City case for you in Alabama. Because the New York City agents can do that, right? So it's not a problem. But if there is an important interview to do, yeah, you get on a plane, you go. And sometimes it has to be a cold call. Let's assume that my subject, my investigation's in Alabama, but my subject just moved to New York City. Guess what? You get on the plane, you go to New York City. You do a cold call on the front door. Hey, I need to speak to you. Here's my credentials. You have the right to remain silent, blah, 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 all that stuff. And you do it. The guy may not even be there, or a lady might not be there. So then you come back another time. Did Sometimes there's a times where you have to be there because it's an important interview. They call it a key witness interview. Other times, if you just need to interview the sales guy who sold the car, the BMW to your subject, I don't need to go to New York City to do that. A New York agent can do that on my behalf. So if there's a, an important key witness interviews, we could go. That's not a problem. Even trained federal law enforcement officers in Indonesia... Yeah. And as well as El Salvador. I went to a couple of countries and even trained them. And people don't realize this, but the IRS does train in other countries' law enforcement officers investigate money laundering and tax evasion. Did you have a, a case like was you when you handle clients were like above certain threshold that you handled? You're asking, is there a dollar amount that the IRS looks at to make it worthwhile their uh, their prosecution? And the answer is yes. And also the answer is it depends. I'll give an mm-hmm. example. When it comes to sentencing, okay, sentencing of a 
defendant. So the person is found guilty or pleads, or pleads guilty. And they go in front of the judge. One of the things that judges look at is a book. It's called the Sentencing Commission's Guidelines. And it's a book that's coming out probably every year. And it gives a chart about if someone commits this type of tax, this type of crime for this amount of dollars, here's the estimated time it should be. And it helps the judges because the person in New York City should get the same sentence in theory as someone in San Francisco, as someone in Des Moines, Iowa, as someone in Orlando, Florida. Otherwise, it'll be all over the place how judges sentence people. So they have a guideline book. Now, the judges can deviate from that book, but at the starting spot is what they are. They start from this area, and then they can go up and down however you want to do it. So there is a guideline, it's public knowledge, about what takes active sentencing to put someone in prison and and the loss. It's around yeah, about $100,000, give or take a little bit. It's like the general idea of where criminal investigation would start it, would start an investigation on someone. It has to be around $100,000 loss. That's not a year. That's cumulative. So if it's, it's $20,000 a year for five years, you, you hit your $100,000 mark. Okay, that's how it works. That being said, do judges in New York City look at a $100,000 loss versus someone in Amarillo, Texas? The answer is yes. They see a lot more $100,000 cases and probably are deep. probably don't give them much time. Amarillo, Texas is probably, ooh, that's a big crime in one side of the country versus another. So the agents in those areas know where the judges are landing when it comes to active sentence. CI is not really, what I call CI, criminal investigations of IRS, is not really interested in doing a year and a half, two years worth of work on something where someone doesn't get jail time, right? It doesn't really give a lot of good press to do that. So you have to find cases that are bigger and better, that are worthy of jail time. So when there's a press release, people can read it and go, oh, this guy committed an evasion of half a million dollars. He went to prison for two years. People know that there's a deterrence factor and all that. So the long answer to your short question, <laughs> the answer is yes, there is a number, but it is fluid because let's assume that you're a mayor and you're taking bribes, right? And let's assume it's a $20,000 tax loss. Are they going to take that case? Absolutely. Because there's a position of trust and people in positions of trust should not be committing tax evasion. But Will they take the average plumber and put that same scrutiny to them? Not for twenty thousand dollars. No, that no. That makes sense. No. Yeah. Now, so that's how it works. I want to say something a little controversial, but I think you make the IRS seem pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> there are parts of the IRS that are cool, but the ninety percent of it, frankly, is just boring. It's just taxes and forms, and do you have money for this? Do you have a receipt for that deduction? I agree. That's that's a yawn. Mundane, I, yeah. It's mundane, but when you, as a criminal investigator, carry a gun and a badge, knocking down doors, and potentially could be, frankly, doing a tax evasion case on a well-known drug dealer, things get a little hairy on you. And let's just face it. DEA, FBI, Secret Service, Homeland Security, they all have their they all have their little niches they go after, right? But when they come across a bank statement, they don't even reconcile their own bank bank accounts personally, right? What makes you think that they're gonna do a they're gonna do a well thought out financial investigation? They're just not mm -hmm. trained for that, right? 
for IRS criminal investigations, you have to have an accounting background to even get in the front door to even be eligible for the job. Okay, so it's not like okay. you can get a psychology degree and become an FBI an IRS agent. You got to have some type of accounting background. So there's a leg up already with the quality of the personnel. It's already been it's already been hired. Is my point. Wow, it's amazing to hear that you took two things that you loved to do, accounting and law enforcement. Really had it sounds like your dream job for the past twenty years, and upon retirement, now what? It's a good question. The answer is, in some ways, we're getting a little personal here. There's a personal reason for why I left. It was, I live in North Carolina. It's a low-cost living state compared to the country. My family's here. My wife's family's here. And financially, I did not have to work anymore. I was blessed enough to where we did some good investments. We've been investing for decades. The retirement's halfway decent from the from the federal government. And, and the choice came down to it is, does it pay to stay? Because I was not interested, frankly, and this is just me personally, I was not interested in becoming a manager and make more money and have a little more of an extra prestige in the organization. Because at the end of the day, two or three years later, you would have to go to D.C. I'm not moving to D.C. I don't want the commute. I don't want the hassle. I don't want, I don't want most of that stuff, right? So... I more or less said, no, I'm not interested in being a manager and then going that management path. I'm stuck in North Carolina. In North Carolina, we are not the magnet for international tax evasion. Okay. That's going to be New York City, LA, Houston, Miami, that type of stuff. And so the type of cases I was doing, frankly, just got bored. I did it, been there, done that, got the t shirt, 20 years, did a great job, had some great cases, even some cases that have hit national news that are quite interesting. But at the end of the day, yeah, I just don't need to stay here anymore. Let's go find something else to do with my skill set. And so that's when I started a podcast called the Fraud Fighter Podcast that talked about forensic accounting. And I took that skill set and now I work for 95% of my clients are attorneys because they hire me to follow the money, whether it's a partnership dispute, whether it's someone's embezzled from the trust, uh, there's a criminal investigation of the defendant may or may not stole, stole money. Uh, there's a bankruptcy problem where there's a uh, potential uh, fraud going on or maybe some uh, transfers that are suspicious in nature, preferential treatment to certain creditors. And so I get hired to do that now. So it's the same skill set, just a different clientele now. So I would say from like accountant perspective, when you were an agent or what you have right now, Especially when you were an agent, as the IRS, as the law came out a couple of years ago, they hire more agents now. They want to audit more people. As an accountant, what practices or best practices you should advise or recommend that they should apply to their clients and make sure, hey, they're covered in their tax planning and their, and their deductions. That, and if the IRS did ask questions, these are the things, all the red flags that they might should watch out for. Is your question, what should a CPA look for to either cover themselves or cover a clients for potential criminal investigation? Is that what you're asking? Or civil side? Both. Both. All right. There, there are two different animals, okay? Yeah. From the criminal standpoint, the burden of proof is on the government to prove that someone committed a crime. So when there is a criminal investigation, 
the IRS does can't just sit there and say, well, he didn't have a receipt for that, therefore he committed a tax crime. That's not how it works. The government has to prove mm-hmm. beyond a reasonable doubt that this person intentionally wanted to commit a, a tax crime. That's one thing. So that's a certain burden of proof. Most of the burden of proof that we deal with this is on the civil side is if you don't have a, a receipt for that, you don't get a deduction. That's a total different burden of proof. If you don't bring the receipt, you don't get the deduction, so what? On the criminal side, we don't care if you have receipts or not. It's all about, did you intentionally put this number down that was false, regardless of a receipt, knowing it was false? And you did it over a period of time and for such a large amount that we have to make you an example of what not to do. Okay, we put you in prison. That's how that works. Now, with that being the background, if I'm a CPA, and typically your CPAs are in the tax preparation business, a lot of them are, they have a responsibility called due diligence. Circular 230 is the IRS regulations that require CPAs, EAs, and attorneys to have due diligence, which means ask normal, reasonable questions to verify which, if you see something that's weird, ask more questions or ask more documentation. If something is normal, you're fine. Okay. But it's called due diligence. That's what, that's what they have to look at. That's from a civil standpoint. So you don't lose your capability of representing people in front of the IRS. There's also a penalty for return preparers who intentionally prepare returns that are false or materially misstating things. So that's out there as well. So not only the penalty can go after the taxpayer, but also after the return preparer. My recommendation is for CPAs is if they come across a person, a client that number one, either asked them to commit tax crimes or is such of a nature that you think they're committing tax crimes, then disengage from from the client. They're not worth it. They're just not worth it. My question would be if, for example, let's say you get a client and they messed up on the prior year tax return, Mm -hmm. right? And hey, let them know here that you picked up a deduction that you should not have picked up. Have your prior CPA or account amend that return. And he doesn't do that. And you bring him on the, the new year, you do what's right. Obviously, you, you don't take the same deduction. What happens then? Do you, it's a different year, different accountant. Do you still disengage even though you're doing it right the, the, the new year and he did it wrong the prior year? There's two different issues going on here. One is an ethical issue. Another one is can you sleep at night issue. Okay. The ethics based upon Circular 230, which is the IRS ethical rules of ethics, as well as almost all the CPA associations statewide, the regulatory boards, would state that if there is a prior tax return that's wrong, you're supposed to advise your client about what is wrong and how they what happens if they don't fix it. Okay, but you're not under any obligation to fix that tax return. It's the client that actually has to either hire you to fix it or to go back to somebody else. But that's their problem. Your issue is to fix is to file an accurate return based upon the information that you have at this point in time. Now, the question is, that if you have a client that goes, I'm not fixing that. What do you do with them? My responsibility at this point in time is, is to file an accurate return for this year and mm-hmm. any other years after that whatever I'm hired for. But there's also a materiality factor involved. Let's assume it's a small mistake. How, in some cases, fixing a mistake from the previous year costs more money to hire the accountant to fix than the tax loss itself. So there's this 
ethical issues, I'm not going to get into it. But for me, I stick with the Circle 230 ethics that says fix the tax returns in front of you, prepare it correctly, and any other mistakes that the client doesn't want to correct, it's on them. It's not on me. I see. I have one question on myth. I hear all the time from attorneys and, and, and CPAs that Schedule C's typically are more audited than any S-corporation or C-corp. But I see no data on, if I Googled this data of why Schedule C's are more audited than any other form, doesn't exist. Is this something that internally IRS agents look at differently than like, if someone as a dental practice has a Schedule C versus an S-corp? Do they look at it differently or based on, okay, Schedule C and this guy is a photographer and based on the industry they're in? Does it matter if he's a dentist or a photographer and it reports at Schedule C? If you're talking about from a criminal standpoint, the answer is we don't care. If you're talking from a civil standpoint, civil. I don't know I don't know of any evidence out there that says a Schedule C is audited more than an S-Corp or anything of that nature. My guess is it probably is. For a couple of reasons. Number one, typically your Schedule C's are done by non-professionals. So the chances of a screw up is higher. They go into TurboTax, they put their little, little business in there, the side business, and it's all screwed up. It's not professionally done. If you have an S-Corp or C-Corp, typically it's professionally done. So the chances of a screw up is a lot higher on a Schedule C just because of the people creating that Schedule C. That's number one. Number two is a lot of times they start deducting things that frankly they shouldn't be deducting or they have losses. And this is also the key too, is it's not uncommon for a business, especially as it first starts out, to may have a small loss. And the losses reduce the income, of course, and to have a low, you have a lower tax bill. The hobby versus business argument is always there as well on a, on a Schedule C, especially on things like photography and horses travel blogs. Oh, I had a $10,000 loss because I went to Vegas and had to do a YouTube video on the Eiffel Tower. I'm all for it if you could do it, but some people take it. They get their tax advice from TikTok and put it on Schedule C, <laughs> Yeah, which causes a problem. But to also let you know this as well, there's also this issue of the 1099s. People start getting income. They don't report everything like they're supposed to. And that becomes a problem on Schedule C's as well. I can see it where some people are probably a little more, there's probably a little bit more uptick on Schedule C's, but there's no conspiracy about all this stuff. The bottom line is that for the most part, the people who are filing tax returns, they only have a 1% chance of even being audited. It's just such a small, so now we're splicing things between S Corporation or Schedule C, which one is, doesn't get audited as much. Frankly, when you start splicing less than 1%, it's not really material, in my opinion. I wouldn't make a C versus S Corp and, and make a decision based upon the chances of being audited, and put it that way. Interesting. Now you are in this second phase of your life, really, with your business. And I see you have a pretty large presence on social media. You've come out with two best-selling books. You started a podcast. You seem to really be capitalizing on building your brand and providing these forensic services now to just regular folks. How did you find these tools 
to create this brand? And like, how are you finding clients? Very good question. I decided on purpose that when I left the IRS in March of 2021, that I was not interested in seeing a tax return. <laughs> I wasn't going to be H&R Block. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be in the compilation reviews for audit business. I work out of my house. I don't want people coming to my house. It's not a place for traffic. I got a crazy dog. I just want to do my own thing. If I only see clients, it's going to be Zoom or I go out there and go see them. That's how I was, how I was going to do it. And I was interested in the big projects, the forensic accounting side of things. And I realized that most of my, in, what I call influence, okay, or my tribe mm -hmm. was defense attorneys because that's who I only dealt with is defense attorneys and prosecutors. Prosecutors are not going to hire me. They have their own agents. The defense attorneys are the ones who need me, right? And so what I ended up doing is that when I left the IRS, I just sent out letters to defense attorneys that I knew, that I worked with, going, hey, I'm now open for business. This is what I do. This is how I can help you. And criminal tax is a small, small niche in this world. But there's a handful of people. I probably sent out maybe 10 or 15 letters, right, locally in the area. And I get a phone call within a week. Hey, I need your help. Okay, fine. And because I had a certain niche, I went to other attorneys and said, hey, are you part of Bar Association? Yes, I am. Would you like to have a free speaker? I'd be more than happy to speak about forensic accounting or tax, criminal tax. Yeah, sure. Then you start getting presentations in front of people as a speaker, which automatically gives you the authority because you're a speaker and you know what you're talking about. And I would just discuss things about criminal tax or forensic accounting or cryptocurrency, whatever I was good at, and just start giving more presentations. The good thing is, is that once you start giving presentations and you record it, if you have about four hours worth of presentations that you can do, it's really a book. Now, we speak and read differently, but for the most part, your outline's already done. Once you start creating presentations, and I did a couple of them, with CPA crossings, there's a lot of CPEs credits that you can get in some of my material out there. I teach about money laundering and some criminal tax issues and some payroll taxes, that type of thing. Things that I was an expert in. And I created some material, gave it to CPA crossings. They sell it across the nation and I get royalties from it. That kind of works. But once you start creating that material to get it transcribed and then edit it and put it into a book and then slap a cover on it that's worthy of someone reading. Like my first book was called Criminal Tax Secrets, What Every Defense Attorney Should Know. And it's just me talking about what I would look for if I was a criminal tax attorney, a defense attorney and all this, in this matter. And it's just me sharing secrets and what's going on behind the scenes and how they can do a better job. And I use it as a, mm -hmm. frankly, as a marketing tool. And then my second book was is called Unpaid Payroll Taxes, a time bomb you can defuse. And it's just talking about how small businesses get into trouble for unpaid payroll taxes and what they can do to help solve that problem. And I noticed that once you start creating content, like you do on LinkedIn and start creating content about speeches, that type of thing, and put it in a book, sooner or later you build a brand. And when I talk now to attorneys, me putting a Google ad is not going to do anything in the accounting world. No one looks yeah. for accountants in Google ads. They just don't. It's all by referrals, right? So you got to find what I call, quote unquote, the influencers, the people who people look to get advice from. And so I went to the bankruptcy courts and said, hey, 
I'd be happy to give you a speech on blah, 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 forensic accounting, whatever else it is. And they, yeah, sure. So I gave a free speech about an hour speech about forensic accounting. You got 34 pe people listen to this stuff, right? You get one or two people say, hey, I need your help. You go help them. You give them a book. Here's my book on this matter. They automatically assume you're an expert. Oh, by the way, your props on chapter seven. Oh, great. Who wouldn't want to hire this guy, right? And once they find out that you do a good job, who do they talk to? They talk to somebody else. They talk to somebody else. Sooner or later, the two becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16, becomes 32. You're not going to win every client. I understand all that. But it makes it a huge closing argument that if I can walk into a room and say, I can solve your problem. And oh, by the way, I wrote a book about it and I've done four presentations on this. You can go listen to it for yourself to see whether or not I know what I'm talking about before even hiring me. It's all out there, right? It's the wonderful world of the web that you can put a lot of content out there to prove yourself. I see a lot of people on LinkedIn. I just put down, oh, I bought groceries today and somebody was very nice to me and they smiled. That's fine and dandy, but it's not really true content. You know what I mean? It doesn't really mm -hmm. help me. There's no value to it. So I see if you bring value, even if it's free in this world, it's amazing the amount of clients that you can get just by bringing free value. Because people automatically assume that once you write a book that you haven't written everything you know, which is true. But for the most part, whatever I write is probably 95% of what I know. But people assume that, oh, he wrote a book. You must know a lot more than the book. Eh, maybe a little bit, but frankly, <laughs> if you read the book, you know what I know. I highly recommend anybody who's in this world who wants to be build their own brand to start putting out content. Content is king. We talked to yesterday Brandon Hall. He also yes. has the real estate CPA, right? Mm -hmm. He said the exact same thing, right? Like content, content, content. And, and, and as he said, he was giving away his information, basically his tax planning for free to the public. And then people will see his information, his content, and see value in it. And reach out to him for business. You point all this content out, your speeches, all different things. And the lawyers are coming to you, have sold that you were the one. Probably more yeah, than exactly. Probably more. So they're sold. They just want to know, okay, how much are you going to charge me? And let's move on. They know that you're the one going to help them fix the case or, or solve the case. It's even better than that. It's because my client is really the attorneys. But who does attorney have to sell my service to? Their client, because their client's the one paying yeah. the bill, not, not the attorney. That's a good point. Good so point. they're making the recommendation. So what I can give their client a copy of the book and show their client, this is my speech on X, then it's even double sold. I've sold the attorney on the idea, and now I've sold the ultimate end user the, the idea as well. That's a yeah. good point. Exactly. That's a good point. And, and nice about content online and speeches online, it can be viewed hundreds of times. And, and everybody can come to you prepared. They did their homework, they read your book, they saw, listened to your podcast or to your videos and speeches. They did the homework on you, they know you already. So you don't have to explain to them what you do, all these different things, and so sell them on, on your cases. That's how I grew my firm. That's how Kelly grew her firm. A lot of people that are in, in this industry, they grow their professional service firm through content. And content... Mm -hmm is actually, it has a lot of value. And obviously it depends on the content you're bringing in, but it's consistency. I think Kelly did a, does a great job with consistency. And for the past couple of years, when she started her firm, she's been consistent posting online. I have a different platform. I, I'm more involved on Facebook. She's on LinkedIn. So it's good to choose your platform 
just because it's, you can't do everything, it makes it easier for you to just focus on one platform. As you're doing podcasts, you have your own book is a great you know, value add. And then your speeches are, are, are great as well. So it's, it stays there forever and people listen to it all the time and all the time and all the time. And the good news is once you put out enough content, no one's going to read all the stuff and watch all the stuff. They're, they're too busy. People don't read books anymore. They skim them. They don't read blogs. They skim them. So you could write a 100-page book. People will probably read that better than a 250-page book because it's easy and quick, which makes it even better for you as a CPA, whoever's listening to the, in, in this audience, is that you can create a 100-page book that just deals with certain things like restaurants in the ERC, something really niched. And you can do four or five different topics like this and have five different books, all of them are 100 pages. And frankly, you can be an expert in all five areas. And people think, wow, you wrote five books. Yeah. And for the most part, people are not going to read even the past the first couple of chapters anyways. They're going to read the first chapter, maybe mm-hmm. two, maybe three. But most people don't read books anyways. So even having a book shows you authority, but frankly, they probably won't even read it. It's just the way it is. I write books. It's cathartic for me. I have things in my brain. I just want to get down on a piece of paper. Otherwise, if I don't do it, it'll roll around in my head and I'll think about it for the next five or 10 years. My first book I had was probably in my head for four years before I actually wrote it. Wow. Uh, just because I didn't know how to write a book. I didn't know how to do it. And then once you get on YouTube and you learn enough stuff out there, free content, it gave me the courage as well as meeting other authors who I thought, shoot, they can write a book. Surely I can. <laughs> I feel like today was a very successful episode. We learned so much about your career and what you have planned moving forward, but also how you built your brand and how you are niched in such a small area of accounting. But the common themes that we'll be talking about is definitely finding your place, finding your niche, building your brand, obtaining clients, and really, truly, it sounds like you do what you love, which I think for most business owners, that's what we should strive to do. Right. And then that's mm-hmm. going to help us in the long run. But Robert, where can we find your book or where's the best place to start following you? I'm on LinkedIn, of course. You can find me on LinkedIn. I also have two websites, NordlanderCPA.com and RobertNordlander.com. My books are on Amazon. I'm currently working on two more books. One's on forensic accounting and the other one's on how to get out penalties with the IRS when you get penalized. We'll start working on those two. Hopefully those will be done in the next couple of months. That's where you can find me. And then if you are a CPA and are interested in continuing education, you can go to CPA Crossings or just Google my name and you'll see there's stuff out there regarding some of the courses that I, that I teach. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robert. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure being here. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Have a great day. Before we sign off, remember to share this episode with fellow accounting professionals. Building the firm of your dreams is a journey best taken together. And by sharing, you're helping others on their path to success.